0: Legal Toolkit with Jared Korea, with guest Julie Armstrong. We play a round of Hoosier Hysteria, and then, man, I gotta tell you about this dream I had last night. You were it, and things got
1: weird. But first, your host Jared Korea. It's time for the Legal Toolkit, and the time is 4:20. And yes, it's still called the Legal Toolkit Podcast, even though I've never actually used a stubby nail eater, but I've been called one before. I'm your host, Jared Correa. You're stuck with me because Bill Curtis was unavailable. He's providing some ominous voiceover work for a true crime documentary right now. I'm the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, a business management consulting service for attorneys and bar associations. Find us online at redcavelegal.com. I'm the COO of Gideon Software Inc., we build chatbots so law firms can convert more leads and conversational document assembly tools so law firms can build documents faster and more accurately. You can find out more about Gideon at GideonLegal.com. Now, before we get to our interview today with Julie Armstrong of the Indianapolis Bar Association, I'm going to take a break from talking about donks for a while. And instead, we're going to talk about law firm fees. Ah, Yes. Law firm fees. Lawyers hate talking about money. They violently hate talking about money. And they're super secretive about their fees because, um, uh, I don't know, the NSA, maybe? There's also limited avenues for lawyers to talk about their fees with each other, even in public settings and through bar associations. Most bar associations don't allow lawyers to talk about fees under their rubric because they're worried about antitrust laws and collusion. But I don't know if I've seen many prosecutions on price fixing for lawyers of recent vintage. In any event, some lawyers are pretty open with their fees. Uh, Some post their prices online as more lawyers move to alternative fee arrangements. Some lawyers offer fee calculators, including for practice areas you might not expect, like divorce and there are lawyers out there who will openly discuss their fees with other attorneys, although not everybody's into that, as I mentioned. The biggest problem, I think, though, is establishing a set of fees, establishing rates, and then sticking to them. The establishment part is tough, and that's probably a whole other monologue unto itself. Um, a lot of new attorneys I talk to, they're like, yeah, I'm going to charge 150 bucks an hour. And I'm like why and they're like i don't know seems like the right thing to do somebody told me that people are also figuring out flat fees on an ad hoc basis without any historical data which is a tough thing to do and there's information out there about pricing but i don't want to talk about price setting so much as i want to talk about price keeping so here's the way i look at it a lot of lawyers out there especially solo and small firm attorneys they get in front of somebody they quotum of price. Sometimes there's a flinch factor involved. And sometimes people just take the price at face value. So just so you know, if, if everybody is like, yeah, where do I sign? That probably means that your prices are too low. It's okay if somebody flinches or some people flinch a little bit. You want to make sure that you're trying to extract as much value out of your business as you can and getting paid fairly for the work that you do. But a lot of those attorneys will get into that situation Guessing on the pricing anyway. And they're like, yeah, I'll charge you uh, this. And then the person says, that sounds expensive. And then the numbers start to come down. You start discounting because you're afraid to lose the client. The worst part is you're discounting to some level that you have no idea where it's going to go. And it's going to be 20% today. It's going to be 50%. It's a terrible recipe because that gets you into what I would call a low bono practice. This is pro bono giving away legal services for free. But then there's low bono, which is giving away legal services for less than they're worth in the marketplace. And attorneys frequently get stuck with that. I think the problem is like, solo attorneys, especially, like, there's nobody you can go back to, to get an answer on that fee question. The client sitting in front of you, they know the buck stops with you, you can't be like, Oh, hold on, Let me check with my manager to see if I can add those white wall tires to your vehicle. They know you're making the call. So what I tell people to do, by people I mean attorneys, obviously, in order to keep the fees where they need to be, in order to stick with the fees, what you want to do is create a fee schedule, rate sheet, whatever you want to call it, just a list of your fees. You've seen NFL quarterbacks wearing wristbands. You've used spreadsheets. Salesmen have price sheets. No reason why you can't have one as a lawyer as well. And the advantage to this is, even in a larger firm, everybody charges the same amount for the same stuff. It establishes a client expectation, and it makes sure that the value is retained throughout the firm for the work that gets done. So this doesn't have to be a crazy type of document. It doesn't have to be shared with clients. Even if it's a totally internal rate sheet that you're using, stick to it. And don't just put on the rate sheet, which you charge for standard fees. If you are going to discount, don't discount haphazardly or in an ad hoc way. Discount using your fee sheet to the levels that you've already set out in advance. Like if you want to provide a discount of 10% to certain clients, or if you want to have a standing discount of 10%, if people complain about pricing, sure, you can do that, but make that part of your fee sheet so that you're not discounting more significantly sounds like a simple thing sounds like an easy thing but if you really want to make what you're worth you have to have some architecture behind your rate structure and the easiest way to manage that is with the fee sheet now before we get to our discussion on how to run a modern bar association with the one and only julie armstrong of the indianapolis bar association let's get some free advice from joshua lennon who has you for this week's clio legal trends report
0: What traits are clients looking for most in a lawyer? According to 86% of surveyed clients, it's being responsive to questions. I'm Joshua Lennon, lawyer in residence at Clio, and this is just one finding from our recent Legal Trends report. Research shows that the quicker a lawyer is in providing information to clients, the more positive the client experience will be. It's no surprise firms with growing revenue are 41% more likely to use client portals to quickly communicate with clients. These secure portals ensure clients always know the status of their case, resulting in a more transparent and client-centered experience. To learn more about what today's clients expect from their lawyers and how firms can meet those expectations, download Clio's Legal Trends Report for free at clio.com forward slash trends. That's Clio spelled C-L-I-O dot com forward slash trends.
1: Okay, now that the majority of my inane ramblings are complete, it's time to interview our guest. My guest today, we have a very special guest. That's Julie Armstrong, who's the executive director of the Indianapolis Bar Association. Julie, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing great. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing all right. Can't complain. We're recording here at the end of the summer. But uh, I guess the fall had to come eventually.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So I want to have you on to talk about a lot of the stuff you do at the Indie Bar, which I think is super interesting and also innovative. But let's start here. To my knowledge, you've been working at the bar since 1991. And certain of your members I've heard refer to you as a legend. I think that's probably true. (laughs) That's true. There's like articles online about it and everything. You've been in the position for a little while. It's like, how do you keep things fresh in that role? Because I could see how that could theoretically stagnate.
2: Yeah, I don't think it's so much me as it is the environment that I'm in. I mean, that's why I stayed at Indy as long as I have is it's just the culture of the bar. And to some degree, it's the culture of the city. Um, It's very volunteer oriented. We've always been very member driven and they've been very open to change innovation with a, a bit of an entrepreneurial mindset. Um, yeah. So it's just created an environment to thrive. And, you know, the work that I do, the things that I've been fortunate enough to get involved in nationally, I, you know, I see what else is out there and I just have never seen anything that beat the environment I was already in. So it's been a great place to work and live and and create.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, I want to talk about like your national involvement in a little bit, but I have to tell you, so when, when COVID started... Mm -hmm. Everybody was freaking out in the legal business. Lawyers, Mm -hmm. bar associations, paralegals, everybody. And you and your members at the Indy Bar organized like a strategic web conference. And you invited Mm -hmm. me to that. Mm -hmm. And I remember clearly like my wife was in the room with me. And then as soon as I got out of the meeting, she was like, wow, those people really seem to have their shit together. So uh, you should know that she was very great. impressed. <laughs> that's great. So like COVID hits, it's a pandemic. Nothing like this right. has happened in the U.S. in like 100 years. How do you react as a bar? And how did you react as quickly as you did to make some changes and do some different things? Because that was hard to do.
2: Well, I think that, you know, again, it goes back to culture uh, because we've always been open to change. And, hmm. and um, the folks that I've worked for attract like-minded innovators. And so I think our immediate reaction was, this is just another opportunity to rethink and redirect so that we can thrive. And, you know, leading into it, you knew that something was going to happen, right? It was just, it was the depth of what happened that I think surprised us. So, Mm. you know, I can remember sitting in a board meeting the first of March and submitting the proposal to the board to create a new policy for access to our in-person activities. And, you know, we were going to have a certain level of requirement for reporting where you'd been and what you'd been doing and so forth in order for you to be physically present. And I had a couple board members, one in particular who works for an international law firm, who said, well, do we, why do we need this? We don't need this. And, <laughs> and, um, you know, we're in Indianapolis, you know, nobody goes right. anywhere. And I said, right. well, you know, if, if you look at your own letterhead, you have Chinese letters in your letterhead. Your people are obviously going somewhere, right? <laughs> right? And so we were already sort of talking about how to transition into something else. And so it wasn't a complete surprise. Like I said, it's just more of a, a surprise in the depth of how it affected us. The other thing that was a little different for us is that the month before the pandemic hit, we actually had gone 100% virtual because we were in the middle of a move to a new office. (laughs) And so we didn't have an office. They closed our access at the end of January of 2020. So we basically just went back to what we were doing. The thing that we had to address, which was you know, turned out to be a blessing for us is we just had to figure out how it affected our members because as an internal team, we already knew how to operate in a remote setting. So tackling the next issue was really what we could focus on instead of trying to figure out all of it.
1: That's really cool that you had, uh, I mean, what timing, right? What a time not to have an office, but like, it's really cool that you had that experience that you could impart to your members too. Mm-hmm, That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And that, as it turns out, I believe we've interrupted you during a strategic meeting to record this podcast. So you continue <laughs> to be planning. So like, yeah. what, what do you see like not just for your bar, but for like bar associations moving forward now that this looks like it's in more of an endemic stage and things are starting to happen again. Do you shift again? In what direction do you shift? Like, how does this work now? Is it a hybrid world? Is it back to being in person? Like, what does this look like?
2: Yeah, I I think from our standpoint, the way we're viewing it is it's the next shift, right? That then is going to require attention to the next shift. I mean, we're not through it. It's going to keep evolving from my perspective, um, and so, you know, the strategic session that we're in right now is in preparation for a larger strategic plan. So, you know, I'm right now looking at internal processes. You know, how's my team reacting? What changes did we make? What did we overlook? What did we abandon? Just trying to be more informed about internal operations so that we can figure out how to take what, Resources of time we have that I don't even realize are available or not available, yeah. right? And take that information into the next conversation, which will be about identity, um, and that's with current and future leaders of the organization to say if this is the world we're living in right now, and these are the resources of time and money and and so forth that are available to us, then what do we want to be as an organization? And it's more of a culture identity conversation than the actual task operations conversation. So once I get that conversation, find out from them what's in their heads, what are they willing to do and be and and hopes and dreams and so forth, then we're taking that into a two-day strategic planning session and the way we do strategic planning is it's not with our board. Um, we do some board just, representatives. Just the staff, right? No, actually, it's its really hybrid. And we've done it like this for years, since, hmm. since probably like the late 90s. I don't know oh, yeah. how many organizations do it this way, but there'll be thir- about 35 people in the room, some board leadership, Mm -hmm. Some people that are involved in other roles with the association will have members who just write the dues check and don't do anything. We'll have people who used to be members and aren't members anymore. Um, And then we'll also have people who have never been a member. And when I tell different facilitators that this is the way that I like to to do it. And, and we kind of cycle facilitators in and out. We don't use the same one all the time. They're usually yeah. surprised, like what's the value that you're going to get out of people that really aren't engaged or, you know, somebody that's never wanted to be a member. And I will tell you, it really informs our group. And I've never had anybody turn us down when I reach out and say, Hey, would you be yeah. willing to do this? They're actually pleased to have been asked and they really fully participate. And we get some really good information so that we can create that overarching strategy, whether it's governance, program and services, finance, you know, internal team, whatever the focus is. And then we'll take that information and take it into our board orientation and leadership orientation for all the various subgroup chairs going into 2023 um, so that oh, we cool. can have an overall plan that everybody's aware of so but that's another COVID change yeah the other COVID change we used to do three-year plan we're Mm -hmm. hoping to get two years out of this one
1: right 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 (laughs) maybe one at least one
2: at least one and honestly I mean I know that sounds crazy but (laughs) it might we may have to abandon it and and we think because the one thing you know is that you you can't count on anything right so you just try
1: you noted like involving members, non-members. How are your members dealing with all this stuff and bar participation? Do you find people becoming more involved? Are they reluctant to get involved? Like, what does that look like for you?
2: So our membership has been up over the pandemic. Um, We gained Ah, members. That's amazing. Our financial position is really strong, but the volunteer leader engagement is down the mm. member usage is up. And so oh, it's yeah. making it harder for me to motivate and retain staff because my staff is exhausted because we <laughs> historically have yeah. been so member driven and we're less member driven now. And, you know, it's not like I have more people and they have more time. Right. And so that's right. that's been a challenge, which is really what's driving a lot of the identity conversation that I want to have. Because if this is what we foresee in terms of member engagement and leadership, then we're going to have to rethink how we deliver our services because I have been reliant on them to help supplement our Mm. services. And if they're not going to have the time or interest, you know. and right now I don't know if it's both or one or the other because we haven't just stopped to really think about it, we may have to rethink what we're doing and how we're doing. But... You know, it's one of those things we just have been so busy, like everybody else, just getting through the day yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, <laughs> right. just trying to adapt that we've made decisions that we're not even fully confident were necessary or are any longer the right decision. Mm. But yeah. we're going to find out. <laughs>
1: right, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Uh, now, that's really super interesting. I got two more big questions to ask you. Yep. One is the fact that you've been able to spin out like different programs and I would even call them different brands underneath the larger umbrella of the bar. You've got a practice builder program, for example, which I think is awesome, which is focused on practice management. Mm -hmm. You just talked about like how it's harder for staff to find time to do things. So I got to ask you, like, how do you find time and make decisions about what you build out, how you spin it off and how you maintain something like that in a bar association?
2: So I will tell you, I think historically we've been really great about the creation phase of new programs and services. We've been really bad about the sustaining and growing. And it's because from my standpoint, at least for our organization, we have not dedicated enough resources to true product marketing. And that's honestly one of the, the 2023 goals and one of my my hiring initiatives right now is to bring in a seasoned product marketer to take oh, over yeah. those areas that are true products. So like practice builder as a tool for helping solos and smalls start, maintain, and grow a practice. I need somebody who can market it just like our, you know, for profit competitor would, right?
1: Yeah. Right, you know, right, right, all
2: right. of those kinds of things. If it's a publication, you know, we mm-hmm. organizations like ours, we're really great with marketing events, and we're really great with PR and communications. We're terrible with product marketing. And so that's something that that we're going to be spending a lot of time on. But in terms of trying to figure out what to offer and how to, you know, shape it and create it, it's listening to the members and listening to your non-members. And, and it's simple questions. You know, we typically sit around and talk about with the market, what are the problems that you're encountering? And trying to figure out if we can be the solution provider for whatever their problem is. And sometimes it's yeah. that we've got to create the product. Other times it's that we just need to create a collaboration or partnership with someone that's already the solution provider. Mm. Um, but asking that question, you know, asking them, um, you know, what's the first thing you do when you start your day? Because that that tells me something that's important to you or some yeah. you know consistent activity that you're engaging in that maybe there's a role for us. And so those are the kinds of things that we try and do when it's thinking about products and services, being that partner in helping them be productive and relevant and profitable.
1: Yeah, that's super savvy, I think. All right, last yeah. question for yes. you. This has, been, this has been great, by the way. Okay. I'd say you're a leader among bar association leaders. You're very active nationally in a number of different groups. The question I have is like, a lot of bar leaders are very reticent to take chances. There's a lot of risk aversion. You've taken some swings, you've done some things, which is really cool. How would you tell other bar leaders to approach the work so that they'd be more willing to try things and take chances?
2: Yeah, I think a big part of it is having the support of your volunteer leaders in an association environment and knowing that that they've got your back. And I think that's probably the biggest deterrent for a lot of people is what's going to happen if I fail. And so fortunately, I've been in an environment where they embrace the idea that we may not get it right, but we're going to learn something. And we're going to come back with that information and improve mm. upon. So you know, the word pilot is a big bonus when you approach leadership yeah. with ideas. You can yeah. pilot anything because pilot <laughs> already gives you that, you know, that safety net of, well, it's just a pilot program. We knew right. that it wasn't going to be right. perfect, right? <laughs> and so just trying to make certain that that you're you're all on the same page and that they know that it isn't about you. It's about trying to deliver for the association and help it meet its goals. And so, you know, if everybody understands that you got to spend money to make money, you just have to be thoughtful and informed and that you're, you're goal-oriented. So what's the purpose? What is it that we're trying to achieve? And if you everybody mm-hmm. can see that vision together, it's a lot easier to get support and to have that safety net for when you fail because you're going to fail. Yeah, You are, but you can turn it into a success if you step back from it, you learn from it, you retool it, and you can put it back out there.
1: Pilot program, got it. That's brilliant. <laughs> Julie, this is great. Will you hang around for the last segment? Sure. Awesome. All right, so we'll take one final sponsor break so you can hear more about what our sponsors can do for your law practice. Then stay tuned for the rump roast. It's even more supple than the roast beast. Partner with Rankings.io, the marketing agency for law firms that want results, not excuses. With flat rates for Google ads, a track record ranking attorneys for the most competitive terms on Google, and a team always easy to reach by phone, even during off hours, Rankings.io is the agency of choice for firms that want the rankings, traffic, and cases other law firm marketing agencies just can't deliver. Visit Rankings.io for a free consultation and start seeing your firm grow. Contract automation isn't a trend, it's a strategic imperative. Though big players in the eSign world will make you believe implementing it will cost you big bucks and more than a few headaches, it doesn't have to be that way. DocuB is an easy to onboard full suite of products and includes the eSignature, brilliant workflow capabilities, and AI contract automation at nearly half the price of those out of touch behemoths. The one thing DocuBee doesn't automate? Their customer service. Visit get.docubee.com slash contracts to set up a call with a real live person. DocuBee will be with you every step of the way. Simplify. With Cosmolex, the only fully integrated practice management solution. Everything you need, accessible anywhere. Trust and general accounting is built in, so you don't need QuickBooks. Cosmolex's Money Finder reminds you to bill for work you put into client matters so you don't leak money. That's messy. Lower cost, better business, and less frustration. Yes, please. It's all built in with Cosmolex. Free trial and take 20% off your first year at Cosmolex.com. Welcome to the rear end of the legal toolkit. It's the Rump Roast. It's a grab bag of short form topics, all of my choosing. Why do I get to pick? Because I'm the host. Alright, Julie. Today we're going to play a brand new trivia game I just invented for you. Oh. It's good. called Hoosier Hysteria. I feel like this is right up your alley.
2: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: So, you you know I live on the East Coast, but I'm kind of cosmopolitan. And I know you love Larry Bird. I love Larry Bird. We should definitely (laughs) talk about Larry Bird. I feel like a lot of people that live where I live think like the Midwest is just like one big state. Like Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, Mm -hmm. they're all lumped together, but they're all really different. And as you mentioned, I have a particular affinity for Indiana because of my uh, love of Larry Bird and Mm -hmm. the Boston Celtics. Now, you've met Larry Bird before, haven't you?
2: Yeah, and I graduated from the same college that he graduated from, so, yes.
1: yes. sycamores, Indiana yeah. State sycamores, for those who don't know.
2: Yeah, go trees. I
1: don't know if I ever told you, but I got a signed Larry Bird jersey in my office, Indiana State version. So the white home jersey, which he wore in oh, the Final Four not game the against Blue. DePaul. Mm-hmm. No. Oh, no, mm-hmm. I did that because that, that, I think he was wearing the white jersey when he had the triple-double in the NCAA semifinal mm-hmm. in 79. So I'm a real fan. Yeah. He's a nice guy, I'm assuming. Like He's him? a
2: very nice guy, yes.
1: very nice guy. <sighs> One day I will get to meet Larry Bird. <laughs> so, I, so I figured I'd try some Indiana trivia out on you, Okay. which I think All you're right. going to crush. So we get some questions. So I'm going to ask you Kay. a question. I'm even going to give you multiple choice. And then oh. tell me what the answer is. Okay. All right, here we go. Mm-hmm. All right. The first professional baseball game ever played actually took place in Indiana on May 4th, 1871. In what town did that game take place? Your choices yeah. are Indianapolis, Fort Wayne, or Evanston.
2: Fort Wayne.
1: Yes, yes. One for one. I knew you were precious. Yeah. There was a team called the Fort Wayne Kikiangas. Oh, that geez. was they were like the first professional baseball team ever and played the and one the first professional baseball game. All right, we start we're starting out pretty well here. Here's another um, one that I think you might know. Okay. What percentage of the world's popcorn comes from Indiana? Is it fifty percent, seventy five percent, or ninety percent? Regardless of what the answer is, it's a lot.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, Orville Redenbacher is from Indiana, so Correct. Um, correct.
1: Brazil, Indiana. Brazil, to be Indiana. Precise.
2: Near Indiana State University. Um yes. <laughs> I'll guess and say 75%.
1: Oh 90%. 90%? 90%. Really?
2: Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. There is a lot of corn in Indiana.
1: Yes. I think that's crazy. Like I had no idea. All right, here's one I think I think you you're gonna ace. The Jackson five. Founded and from which Indiana town? Gary, Santa Claus? Gary, or? Indiana. No, you Gary, need, Indiana. need me to finish. That's right. Yeah.
2: <laughs> you can visit You can visit their home. It's a historical landmark. I didn't Gary, know that. Mm-hmm.
1: One of my favorite Jackson 5 songs is Going Back to Indiana.
2: Oh, That's a yeah. great song. Yeah. All
1: right, you're, yeah. you're crushing it so far. Ben. Two for three. I got two more for you. <laughs> okay. This one's a little bit tougher. I didn't know this one. The distinctive Coca-Cola bottle was actually designed in Terre Haute, Indiana, mm-hmm. by the Root Glass Company, which mm-hmm. won a contest that Coca-Cola launched to glass companies around the United States. What year did they win that competition and the, mm. and the Coca-Cola bottle was launched? 1915, 1930, or 1948? Wow. I, like mm. I said, I, I did not know this. This is totally new to me.
2: I'll say 1915.
1: Correct. Correct. You're crushing it. only missed one. All right, last one. (laughs) Last one. I think you're going to know this one too, but this was new information to me. Okay. Now, this is, so I'm from New England, as I mentioned, and most people probably think like covered bridges, Vermont, New Hampshire, but the place where there's the most covered bridges in the United States is actually Indiana and you're nodding. So you may know this without even me giving you multiple choice, which Indiana County has the most covered bridges in the United States. Is Is it Park County, Park County, Park County, 32 covered bridges in Park County alone. And Indiana is known as the covered bridge capital of the world.
2: And you can attend the covered bridge festival in Park County, Indiana.
1: Amazing. All right. Look yep. at you. You're like the bar director, you're like the Indiana <laughs> tourism board. I love it. <laughs> so, you want to get your covered bridge fixed? You yeah. know where to go.
2: <laughs> yeah. And it's in the fall. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful yeah. time to go over there.
1: If you're somebody who's never seen like a covered bridge in person, it's actually pretty cool. Julie, yeah. you crushed the quiz as I knew yeah, you would. I knew. You know Indy better than anybody I know. Um, Thanks for coming on the show. This is a blast.
2: Thanks for having me. I appreciate you, and I appreciate everything that you do. I mean, you'd even talk about the fact that, you know, I know that you provide a lot of services to a lot of our members, and they sing your praises, so oh, Your members are great.
1: Love working with everybody over there. Thank you, Julie. Take it easy. Thank you. Take care. If you want to find out more about Julie Armstrong and the innovative things she's doing at the Indianapolis Bar Association, visit IndyBar.org. That's I-N-D-Y-B-A-R.org. IndyBar.org. Now, for those of you listening in Toadhop, Indiana, yes, that's a real place, I've got a superb Spotify playlist for y'all. It's Songs of the American Midwest. Now, let me tell you about this weird dream I had about this monkey. So Peter Tork comes right up to me, and uh, actually, we're probably going to run out of time. I'll have to tell that story later. Because we're out of time on yet another episode of the Legal Toolkit podcast. This is Jared Korea reminding you that it's okay to eat watermelon seeds. You won't actually grow a watermelon in your stomach, you'll just poop them out. So I apologize to my kids for lying to them for years. Hopefully, they don't listen to this.